the essence of, the, of our tradition is social interface. The essence of it is to keep us involved and engaged in living. Uh, via social media, we, we're estranged from each other. We're even estranged from ourselves. I'm very optimistic about the future of our synagogue, of our community, because I, I'm, well, I'm a very optimistic person, but I also see that these changes are hugely important. Welcome to Episode 6 of A Jewish Life. I'm Rabbi Boris Dolan, Rabbi of Congregation Dorshe Emet in Montreal, Quebec. And today we continue to hear the stories of our Jewish community, learning about our history and exploring our identity through the Jewish journeys of our diverse Jewish mosaic. We are back after a very long break, and I'm excited to share today our interview with Elaine Kaplan and Howard Berger, two longtime members of Dorshe Emet and active leaders in the Jewish community. Elaine and Howard share with us their journey, not only into Jewish life, but also the ways that their different family backgrounds influence their worldviews and how their marriage and partnership wove together their individual stories to create a powerful partnership and a life of love, learning, and activism. They reflect on the importance of remembering their history, on the power of family, and the delicate balance of holding on to tradition while working to promote change. I hope that you will be as inspired by their story as I was. Welcome, Elaine and Howard, to this episode of A Jewish Life. It's great to have you here and to have you share your story today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So in a moment, I'm going to ask you some questions about your life, your upbringing, but I want to start with the most important question. How did you both meet? (laughs) (laughs) We met in the band in high school in grade eight. In high school? So it's been a while. Okay. We've known each other since 1963, and though we were not friendly we were in the same class throughout high school in -hmm. those days in our school uh, the classes were organized according to your marks and we were in a particular range so we were together all through high school every day but not friends now i want to correct something my wife said she's just said i'm not friendly that's not what she meant she meant we weren't we weren't close friends in high school i understood what she meant Because she knows I'm friendly. Of no, course, you were friendly to other people, but anyway. oh, you see, there is an agenda. <laughs> no, I see, I knew this was an important question <laughs> yeah, to start off. I was off a loner. So anyway. Okay. So we've known each other since we're 13. Wow, and, and when we're, the... we're about 68 now. I so. see. Oh, that's that's that wonderful. Sweet? It's yeah. it's good that it worked out. So when did you actually start knowing that you were we, more uh, than we, just we unfriendly people? We found each other uh, uh, it, when we were 24. Okay. And married a few months later. Okay. Because wow. we th- we didn't have to do the background checks. <laughs> we we'd done our due diligence we, in we high knew, school. We knew <laughs> yes. the basics. We knew, even though things had changed. You know, person a person doesn't change from thirteen no. to twenty four to sixty eight in terms of their their character. Let's uh-huh. say. When we uh, met up, it actually was a result of a friend of Elaine's mentioning to her that I had broken off with a, a three year relationship with the. As another another friend who um, we were all friends in high school, but we, that other lady and myself, we were both together in law school. Uh-huh. And Elaine called me and just like that, you know, said, how are you doing? And our first date, we watched Richard Nixon resign. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> August 8th. It was August a momentous 8th. day. Uh-huh. So you remember that well. We do. What a, what a happy date. <laughs> Actually, for the whole world, it was not it was a bad a day. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. You weren't even alive. I right? was not, no. <laughs> but I've, I've heard stories and seen it on TV. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of us were very relieved. Yes. Yeah. It was well, a step in the right direction. Yeah. But we, we knew each other. Less. You know, you know, 400 kids in your grade, but we were um, in the, many of the same classes. Uh, so we really had a good idea about what each other was all about. Okay. It wasn't very difficult. We were of the right age, and uh-huh. it just seemed like the right thing to do. Wow. So it At took us time, about 10 weeks. Was, you know, you go, things are different now, I think, but during our youth, there was a period of a few years where everybody got married, mm-hmm. or didn't, but most people did, and then everybody had children. Uh, it's a little different now. Of course. So we sort of followed that pattern. Great. Yeah. Well, so you've been together for a while, and from that romantic first date watching Nixon right. resign to, to today, I know you've been, been through a lot in, in, your, in your lives. You've yeah. seen a lot. You've learned, uh, of course, I'm sure, a lot about each other, but also done quite a bit of good in this world, and that's yeah. part of what I'd like to talk about today. But before we even get into that, um, so before you met, uh, tell me a little bit about your, your upbringing. Did you both grow up in Montreal? Do you, what do you know about your ancestors, the people who who came before you, and either one of you can start. Go ahead. Elaine, go ahead. My parents were born in Lithuania, born and raised there. My father and his family managed to come to Canada July 29th, 1939. Okay. It was kind of a miracle. Um, My mother was not so lucky, lost her whole family, went through the war in Europe, ended up in the United States in the 40s after the war ended. Uh, a shidduch was arranged, my parents married, and I was born in 1950. We were very poor. We had my father's small family, so we all, we were rich in, 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 in happiness, but poor in every other way. Mm-hmm. Um, struggling immigrants. Uh, my father even had parents, so I had grandparents. Mm. Um, the household certainly um, retained the... Uh, the flavor of the old country mm-hmm. um, and there was a very strong um, obviously a very strong Jewish component to my upbringing and still is uh, but uh, there was also that that sort of the Holocaust part of it that was uh, yes. stated, understated, not stated misstated but it was always there mm-hmm. um, and uh, my family was uh uh, as I said, small but extremely close. Uh, I saw my cousins almost daily. Um, there was a tremendous solidarity. And one of the things about my family that I realize is different from other families is that in spite of the natural differences between <laughs> any two that you pick, they didn't let those differences get in the way so that no matter how they felt about any issue, they managed to get along and be happy together. This was a very... I learned in my life a very unusual situation. Mm-hmm. My uh, One of my uncles became a, a very devout Baha'i. So there was always a discussion about you know whether he would wear a kippah during the Seder. And it was not always pleasant. But in the end, everybody sat down and it was fine. Um, part of this had to do with my strict grandfather who made sure that everybody got along and behaved well. But part of it was a, kind of a natural response to being immigrants in a country where they were really they really needed each other very much 
So it was a, a very uh, important message that I got that no matter what happens, there's always a common ground and a common thread, and that's what really matters. Mm-hmm. So those are clearly values that you held on to very You can't soon. change them. Yeah. You know, they're, they're not always easy to do. Uh-huh. And I've had my share of difficulty with the whole idea, but uh, uh, that was a message that was very important. The other thing that I learned in my childhood, or my a very important childhood memory, which I've, I can see it, I can hear it, I can even smell that smell in my grandparents' apartment, you know, elderly mm. Jewish people. He made gefilte fish every week, you can imagine. <laughs> I, I can remember, remember those smells too. I can remember my, my, my father, my mother, my aunts huddled around um, paying out the, the, the dollar bills to put together so that my grandparents had money for their rent and expenses because they had no revenue. There was no old age pension in that time. So it's a very, very important memory of the children looking after the parents and there too, though there may have been certain ones who weren't happy about the contribution and could have used that money for their own purposes. There was no question that you took care of the parents and there was no argument about it. And that was a very important picture. And okay, there's one more. A lot of stories from my father, who was a terrific raconteur, about the kind of tzedakah they would practice back home in Lithuania. Whether they were rich or poor, and they had many different uh, levels of uh, uh, economic uh, success uh, during his 30 years there. Um, It was a lot of up and down. There was a tremendous emphasis on on looking after other people. I'll give you a couple of examples because they're very sweet. Uh, there was um, one day of the week where, I think it was Wednesday, anyone who came to the door, the back door, was given money. The maid mm. had money and she gave it out. Uh, another story, my grandmother arranged with the butcher that anyone who hadn't ordered a chicken or a piece of meat by whatever day of the week it had to be ordered, the butcher was to send the chicken to that person's home anonymously. And it's it was a lovely little story but when my grandmother died, there was actually a family at the Shiva who was a recipient. So I got to hear, you know, the two versions, the, the you know, the, the lovely mm-hmm. story about your Baba was such a good woman and, and the family who said, I found out your family looked after me, mm-hmm. which that was a very, very nice message. Uh, my, my grandmother also was known for soliciting businessmen in the community for, for dowry, for bride's expenses and so on for poor Jewish girls who didn't have. So, you know, th- th- this probably a little bit of uh, exaggeration in the stories, but but they were very meaningful. And particularly because we were really poor when I was a kid, um, I guess in a way it, 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 it kind of, it resonated. Mm-hmm. So that's that, those are the highlights of my, my Jewish story. There's, there's a wonderful story that Elaine is leaving out that her father used to tell um, they lived in really in a shtetl, really a very a crossroads, maybe one street. You it know. wasn't a shtetl, it was less than less. a shtetl. It was, you know, five or six houses. Enough. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, under fire during the First World War, because the Germans and the Russians were fighting in their fields, their potato fields, they had to leave suddenly. They just had to exit this little place. And as they drove out of town, her grandfather remembered about the Sefer Torah, 
he had forgotten to take it with him. So he went back mm. to get it, yeah. and you tell. Well, they he he managed to save the safer Torah, and they took ran it with off them in their horse-drawn cart to the next town. And when um, they ended up escaping from Europe in the nick of time and, and ending in this wonderful country here, uh, the family legend became that that act was... it was uh, The intervening act that... The, the, the act that... Saved you know, them. That made, made God notice that, <laughs> that they needed special... special Whether it's true or it's know. not true, it's a great story it's, to tell children and grandchildren. I think it's a true story. I, I, you know, I heard enough versions of it that I think there's a, a lot of truth to it. Well, all these little stories you've shared so yeah. far are, seem to have the message that the littlest acts can have a very big difference. And, well, this and is, that's and, something and you grew up really understanding. Absolutely. And the focus was very much on action. There was no particular concern with prayer, religion, synagogue, mm. etc. My grandfather was always the one who, in every community where he lived, he would make sure that a new synagogue would be built. You know, And I was very happy to be involved in the building of this one. But it didn't mean that they liked to go. Mm-hmm. You know, the, of course. <laughs> uh, the, the whole issue of uh, theology and 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 uh, anything that was cerebral was really of no importance. But what was very important was that everybody should have a Shabbos, and that every bride should have what she needed. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, um, that's a good entree for me to jump in because yes. the other half so of that sentence thing? is, I guess, we're the cerebral. My family okay. is, is the cerebral complement to that part. Uh-huh. Not that one part is more important than the other because it it, it takes takes many different kinds of people. It's like uh, like a lulav, right? And an etra, we have all those four meaning to make up a community. That's so right. we're the other part of the community. Um, and not till I married Elaine did I understand the yichis. All of my family, all of my grandparents also come from Lithuania. There is an over-representation of rep- Lithuanian Jews and their descendants in Montreal as opposed to Toronto or New York. It's a very large lineage that traces itself to Lithuania and because of the Haskalah it was a little bit more forward thinking in of terms of people's approach of course. so my father's father was goddess Smichut in, uh, in Telj mm. in Lithuania okay. and arrived in New York City with the supposed job of some kind as a rabbi um, and he got smichut at a very young age, at 14 or 15, something like that. That's impressive. Uh, yeah. No, it was. He was a uh, Talmud Mitzdayan, apparently, and he, 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 whatever. Anyways. So he had a bar mitzvah and then became a rabbi. <laughs> something that's, like that. That's the way to do it. Yeah. He probably got married this um, <laughs> And he, he didn't ultimately have that job in New York City, but they sent him to Ottawa. They said there's a small, struggling Jewish community there. It's like 1904, 1905. Mm. And there were a few Jews there, and they really were struggling. There was like one notable, and everybody else was really in abject poverty. He sent for his wife with five children who came in steerage a few years later and then had three more, of which my father was one. Mm. So three of those eight children were actually born in Canada. They all struggled with getting out of poverty and struggling with their tradition. Of course, the girls were... uh, were uh, doing domestic chores. The boys were studying, right, and going off to university. The oldest child actually went to JTS, like around 1915, 1916, and was uh, a um, a new and was friendly with Mordechai Kaplan. knew knew about him. I mean, even at that time, he was you know he was he was teaching, so it was like <laughs> almost like I wouldn't say a disciple, but he, though of, of an orthodox background, 
he became a conservative rabbi and was the founding rabbi of the Shahr Zion. So really? my father's yeah, family yes. was active in the development of that synagogue. So we see a parallel kind of situation here with families establishing synagogues, uh -huh. which, and Shahr Zion is going to be 100 years old in four or five years, so it's, it's, a, it's an important institution. My parents, uh, my mother's family started to arrive and settle in Lachine in the 1860s, 1870s, and by the early 1900s, we're all here as well. So that I'm a second generation Canadian, um, and uh, both those families were active in synagogues, building them schools and so on. My parents were on many, many boards and served in leadership capacity. And my father had followed the Reconstructionist movement since the 30s. Mm -hmm. <laughs> in fact, somewhere here, we'd given to Rabbi Ron, uh, I don't know, maybe somewhere here. My parents took a bookbinding course for a while, and we had like 40 years of the Reconstruction is bound. Oh, I know where those are. Yes, <laughs> right, So you know about them. Beautifully bound. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you said the right thing. <laughs> they did it as an interest they had between themselves, my parents. It was an activity. But it was a good thing because you had all, you have hard copies. Of course, mm -hmm. I guess they're probably all online now. No, uh, not many the of early them. ones. No, not the definitely early not. Ones. Yeah. No, I've looked at um, Whether anyone reads the old ones, right. I don't know. But, uh. So, uh, born in 1950, okay. I was the beneficiary of the kind of ideal Jewish child's <laughs> upbringing mid-century. I went to a Jewish day school. I went to Jewish summer camps. Uh, I uh, went to a summer camp, which was Reconstruction it's in its orientation. Which it one? It was called Camp Moden in Maine. Hmm. And it was established by a bunch of Upper East Side intellectuals in the 1920s. Actually, 1922 will be its 100th anniversary. Uh, 2022 will be its 20th. I attended the 75th anniversary. Um, and for children, we, didn't, we really didn't know. We were just experiencing what that might look like. The fellow who ran the camp, who was a social worker, was, was somewhat of a visionary. And he invited Kaplan, who would come... Uh, for two or three weeks in the summer in Maine, and he would teach the parents on weekends and meet with kids occasionally, but he was beyond kids. I mean, he was in his late 70s or early 80s, something like that. He was a very, he seemed like an old man to me. Mm -hmm. But his, his, uh, his teachings were actually being implemented in this camp. You know, in terms of Shabbat was really quite an experience. I mean, it started with... Uh, Tfilot uh, on, on Friday night, and almost like a Fabrengen after <laughs> supper. But the, these were all kids coming from New Rochelle and uh, Lansing, Michigan, and, and, mm. and Upper New Jersey, and all these things. But we we had a we had a good time. We had a very good time. Now, did the Reconstructionism come across in theology and in, in ritual? I mean, the the first official Reconstructionist camp was just created not that long ago. No. So, but to have yeah, we, Kaplan at a camp must have meant he was. In some ways, experimenting with those values, with that theology. So, what what was he really bringing to the camp in that? Way? Well, he, no, he he was bringing those. I mean, uh, you know, how can I say? It, it looked more like a conservative service in the morning. Um, it wasn't quite there yet. It hadn't gelled. I mean, there wasn't even a movement at that point in time. I'm talking That's true. 1956 to 63. It was just it was just ideas, you know. Maybe there were chavurot here and there who didn't even identify themselves as chavurot. They're just people of of a similar kind of uh, interest. Mm -hmm. And anyway, to so get back to me, that so I benefited from all these things. And when I met Elaine, it was um, 
easy to set up a, a household together because we knew each other and had the same kinds of values. And I think we were we we made a good guess. <laughs> Absolutely, but we where was whereas we certainly shared values, uh, our religious or Jewish experiences had were quite different. My parents never belonged to a synagogue. My father, you know, would resist when his father would try to get him to go. <laughs> but my mother, who had been raised in an Orthodox home in Lithuania with all the trimmings, after the war, she didn't want to hear about religion. I mean, there's no God. Forget the whole thing. Leave me alone. So we never belonged to a synagogue. I was probably in a shul, uh, you know, maybe for my cousin's bar mitzvahs, which were done under duress, believe me. Um, but when we finally got her here, she followed word for word. Well, I learned everything <laughs> I've learned, everything I know about Jewish ritual practice or prayer, let's say, or theology, I've learned here in these my 40-plus years at Dorsche Emet. Mm-hmm. I had a, a, a serious understanding of Jewish values, ethics, etc., from my home life, from the experiences around me, and from also the, the conversations I had with my father, who was a great one for talking about Jewish practice, as long as he didn't have to put on tefillin, it was okay, you know. Uh-huh. As a matter of fact, uh, he gave his tefillin to our daughter, our first child who had her bat mitzvah, and they were, <laughs> they'd never been, they all the letter, leather just <laughs> cracked in pieces because they hadn't been unwrapped uh, oh since 1922. Um, so... You know, I, I, I was the kid who, when all the other kids would talk about where they were going to shul for Rosh Hashanah, I would hide because I know I wasn't going to shul. I didn't, I was embarrassed. And and everyone in the neighborhood, you know, belonged to one place or the other, but not us. So, uh, but we, we observed the holidays, we observed Shabbat with all the trimmings, but it didn't involve anything to do with God, prayer, community, etc. No. Mm-hmm. So it was a, it was a very different experience in that respect, uh, and and you know, one thing that was very nice is as soon as we uh, we married, uh, we were it was suddenly Pesach, and um, Elaine's parents hosted their usual seder with thirty or thirty five people as they always did, and asked my father to lead it, um, which he was very happy to do. And he understood after the first Seder that he would have to take a different approach to it because people were less familiar. And his his his, his um, desire was to involve everybody in the Seder, more so than whether we got, you know, through everything as it should be, chasal, Seder, Pesach. That didn't really matter. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, what mattered was that everybody be at the table and be involved. Mm-hmm. So that developed from year to year, and they struck and... Um, Without knowing it, they struck a bargain. My father was always one to uh, collect and try to have alternate readings before it was popular. And uh, he put he began to put together and developed a good introduction to his Haggadah. And then he asked Elaine's dad, who was a very accomplished artist, to illustrate it. And we have continued to modify that. So we have our mm-hmm. own Haggadah. Which now incorporates pictures of the family, yeah. but it, it's it's you know, it's based on other sources. But we just compiled them and put them all together. It, yes. So it's interesting. And Howard's family, where synagogue was a part of their life, very important part, and they 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 belonged to the committees and they did the the the, the, the charity work and all that stuff. Came to a holiday. It wasn't always the most joyful, you know. It was they didn't 
get together. My family, where you wouldn't you know where the synagogue was, we didn't miss a holiday and we were always together, including my Baha'i uncle um, <laughs> and my cousins who eventually intermarried and so on. And the kids I brought home from university who had nowhere to go. And so um, I was accustomed to the whole concept of Jewish holidays with lots of non-Jews around. Um, in addition to my little family, the other people who became part of our family were mostly Holocaust survivors, stragglers, people without children, neighbors. Uh, my childhood was full of people who's, whom I called aunt and uncle. I didn't really understand what the relationship was. They were certainly not relatives. Uh, you know, the sweet lady who sat at the table nicely had been a partisan. You know, the things that I learned about them over time were very interesting. But it was very normal for me to be in a situation where they were you had to explain things because the non-Jews didn't understand. Mm -hmm. And of course, for Howard's family, this was a bit of a shock because they, they didn't have this experience. So creating the Haggadah was a really useful tool. And it's um, in our current situation, you know, we, we joke about it. But, you know, if we have 51 percent of the Seder table Jewish, we're, we think that's pretty exceptional. Uh -huh. And we've we've learned that um, uh it's such a compelling story. I mean, obviously, I don't have to tell you that. It's been interesting for us over the years to see <clears throat> how so many of our non-Jewish guests have reacted to it and how they're just blown away by the whole thing. Mm -hmm. It's even led them to, uh, our in-laws, for example, who are Hindu, it led them to look very differently at their own holidays. Instead of just eating, it's all about, let's tell that story and let's, let's you know, let's cherish our heritage. So... You know, the, the Haggadah has not just been an insubstantial part of our life, but a very important one. And it's clear you both grew up in strongly Jewishly identified homes with different a different focus, a less religious right. Elaine for yeah. you and Howard. Yours was more religious, but it's fascinating when you came together, when through each sharing it's your families rich. in a sense, you learned yeah. from each other. Howard, your family learned to maybe have a little more fun with Pesach and, right. and Elaine, you, a little bit of religion was brought into your family. So your partnership wasn't only great for you, it actually changed both of your families in a way. Um, my mother, again, as I mentioned, a Holocaust survivor who had no use for any of this stuff, but had the education. Uh, they would not belong to a synagogue, but when we became more and more active and finally had a child, I think they even joined before our first child was born. How could they not belong to the synagogue? You know, <laughs> so she, you know, we'd <laughs> we'd bring them here every week, and my mother would scoff and make fun, and you know, all she wanted to talk about is where are we going for lunch after. Mm -hmm. And she'd sit down, and she'd pick up the siddur, and she'd pick up the chumash, and she'd follow, and you know, she'd follow along with the haftorah. You can't unlearn what you know. So whether she had any respect for it or not, it wasn't relevant. She was in the moment. Yes. following along wow. very interesting for me to see that uh -huh. i had no con conception that that might have been possible she had grown up in a uh culturally strong jewish background and att attended a gymnasium so her reading mm. her even her, her vocabulary in hebrew was quite extensive i mean she could easily follow more so than elaine's father who really who would yeah. have been the one no, who went to cater yeah i mean we're talking 1909 or 19. 12 or whatever it was not the, yes. you know 
education was a, it was kind of jumbled in those days. Yeah, this was not a wholesome creative environment. Well, I mean, he didn't like Cheder very much, and then he went to a very interesting school in Hamburg. It was Rabbi Karlobach, uh, who had uh, developed the school. It was sort of the leading liberal Orthodox school where they taught math and science. So he did have a few years there. And then uh, when there were some serious financial reverses in the family, no more private school, no more boarding school, he ended up back at home. So they hired a tutor who lived mm. with them for many years, and he was his teacher. The other thing that's interesting from both families, though, was a strong, strong commitment to Zionism. Of course. Uh, yeah. they, uh, the Kaplans had a hachshara, which was like a youth group in preparation for making aliyah, mm. trying to teach them trades like painting, welding, practical trades, if they got to Eretz Yisrael, they would be able to actually perhaps support themselves. This mm-hmm. was in Lithuania. They, my see. grandfather created this hachshara in Lithuania, and it was, I don't know which years, I'm guessing it might have been around 1930-ish, uh, and this went on for several years. And in my father's family, um, uh, there were eight siblings, um, my father and two of the siblings relocated to Palestine in the mid-30s. One of his sisters was actually the secretary to Moshe Sharet, who was president of the State of Israel. Um, for a year. For, yeah, for a few yeah. years. And your uh, father was a journalist? He was a journalist Palestine of the Post? Palestine Post, which is a precursor to the Jerusalem Post. And his sister was married to the editor of the Palestine Post, who was from South Africa. So they, and, and, and they were intending to bring their parents. So this family was sort of moving slowly there. Mm-hmm. My father came back before the war and met my mother in June of 1939 when he returned. They married, and then the war broke out. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, their father, my grandfather, died between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, 1939. The war was like seven days old or something. So in his tombstone, which is here in in the cemetery where I work, um, I found it. And there, it's all in Hebrew, the the text. And it says, there's a commitment by the family to move his remains to Harazetim when the war is over. And they never, they never never fulfilled that pledge for one reason or another. Well, no one expected the war to last seven years. And the world was a different place. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't. I guess they just never moved on. I, I was. I only noticed it now. I never knew about it. Mm-hmm. So I have no one to ask. No one is alive anymore to no. say what happened there. Uh-huh. So both your families had and still have a strong connection with Israel and Zionism. Yeah. So what what does Israel mean for you as far as not just uh, visiting but symbolically a for, for the Jewish community? A dilemma. <laughs> I I hear you there. Well, Howard did his, was it sophomore junior year, year, yeah. junior year at the Hebrew U. Mm-hmm. He lived there for 14 months. Uh, it was a special time. It was 1969 yeah. and 70. And just two years post the 67 war, Israel was on a high. The whole yeah. world Nobody, was on a you high. You could do no wrong. You know, it really, it was like the yeah. darling of everybody, except for those who <laughs> wanted its destruction. But most most of the world was very supportive and not un, unhappy when they prevailed, but we didn't know 67 would become 73, and then 82, and all these subsequent battles which continue to frustrate and not be resolved, and mm-hmm. don't resolve the problem, so. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, it's, 
I always talk with reserve about disappointment because we don't live there. And I think there's a limited amount of influence and and right you have to to stand in judgment when you're not, you don't have skin in the game. I mean, you, we ultimately have skin in the game because we're Jews around the world and there's no question that our goral, that our, uh, our uh, eventual outcome is tied up inextricably with whatever happens in the Middle East. I, I'm not uh, quite sanguine about that. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, I don't live in Sterot or Yerucham, you know, 150 meters from a fence. Mm -hmm. which, you know, 250,000 people would like to tear down. Mm. It changes everything when you're, you know, on the front lines. On the other hand, <laughs> we do have an obligation, even as friends and lovers and supporters, to criticize when we, and dissent, yeah. if we feel that inappropriate, you know, government policies are being undertaken. Mm -hmm. I noticed that there is a movement, I just saw it on Facebook, Lobby Shmi, Mm. Not in Wait, my name. Not in my name. Yes. That's our, yeah. I, you haven't seen our daughter's latest posting? No. She's taken that now as her, 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 her photograph. Oh. It's in three languages. I have to say that uh, I never had any really, though my parents had very strong feelings about Israel, I, it never really interested me at all um, until I traveled there as part of my summer in Europe when I was about 20 or 21. Uh, and it was, uh, there's a very, there's something incredibly special about it that even I could understand. Uh, we had family at the time. I think they're probably all dead now. I stayed with them and they toured me a bit and they took me to the Wailing Wall. And, and I remember my, my, my aunt asking me, how do you feel standing here? And I felt nothing. You know, mm. the Wailing Wall meant nothing to me. I didn't understand the history and I didn't really care. But being there, there's something about it. It's, is it... Is it the fact that it's so far from home, that it's the Middle East, that it smells different, that there's, it's dusty, it's sandy, it's, it's all those things, and it's Jewish, and it's, it's life, you know, I, I, I was struck by that, it, was, it made a very great impression. I've been back a few times, uh, I had the tremendous opportunity of working uh, for Ben Gurion University, I'm still helping them out here in Montreal. Uh, for me, that was um, a way to do something proactive in my small mm -hmm. way that didn't conflict with the way I feel about this very tragic situation in the country. Mm -hmm. It's, a, you know, I'm very unhappy about the, 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 the occupation. I, I don't even want to go in the list, but having been to Beersheba several times, having seen how the university functions, learning more and more about it, seeing how Bedouin commun communities at least have an opportunity to have a better life. We won't talk about the fact that they can't own their land and all those terrible things that have happened, but th the truth is that, you know, there are things being done to help, and they're good things. And, and that's, I've been very proud to be associated with that. Mm -hmm. um, it's a difficult, a very difficult problem, because of course, living here in Montreal, uh, knowing many, many people, uh, having many relationships with people in the Jewish community and out and outside, uh, there's quite a variance of opinion. We're certainly on the leftish side, but not nearly as far left as some people we know, like our children. And uh, then there's the right side, and all those people I really, really like, who are so so opposed to uh, the things I believe in. Yes. 
Though we all say we want the same thing, I'm wondering if we really do. In any case. Well, it, it, it does seem like you both have a deep love for Israel, the, the land, the people, the symbolism of it, but also a more nuanced view of of what that country, how that country actually exists in this world, you know, with the, with the, what the military does, with the occupation, with everything else. And I think it's, I feel it is becoming harder and harder for people to remember that you can have that, that view. You can deeply love the, the country of Israel, but also be deeply bothered. And as I often tell people, if it's truly a important part of our Jewish identity, our family, just like you can, love a family member but be bothered by some of the things that they do right. you don't give up on them no, you right. still love them deeply you yeah. still want to take care of them but you also have to say some sometimes the things you do just are, are not good for yeah. for the country just within the last few weeks charles bronfman was awarded and an, mm. uh, uh what do you call that um israel prize no 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 it it, it was it hebrew university or not hebrew university. doctorate no no it was at yeshiva university or hebrew Union college one of those he was made a doctor of whatever yeah. that is uh, uh-huh. and he chastised the Israel government for failing to recognize the Jews of North America distancing yeah. them from yeah. to such an extent that there is the potential to be cut off forever I mean it, it's you know all of us who follow the liberal movements are not recognized and that, that's just unfair. That's six to seven million Jews, and they're, that's like almost 50% of the Jewish world has no standing. Yes. And that, that's not tolerable. And it's uh, that, I guess, what we have to continue to try to fight to make inroads. And it is good that a leader of that stature has the guts to stand up and say publicly yeah. that this, is, this has gone on too long. Yeah. And yeah. you can't dismiss us because it's true that there are there isn't the same dependence that there was in the 50s and 60s even the 70s for that financial support israel now has its own billionaires and mm-hmm. its tech startups and so on but they do need us as ambassadors sure and as connectors and as friends and supporters they don't have a lot of supporters all over the world no, and yeah. well. they have an inextricable link to us whether they like it or they don't yeah. like it and that that's that's a sore point you know um, I, I didn't experience open and direct anti-Semitism in my life till I was in my 50s. I think that's pretty amazing, especially having grown up in a poor neighborhood where we were not only Jewish people on the street and so on. But the first, term, first time someone said something against Jews in front of me, I was already past age 50. Um, you know... I'm more careful now about what I'll, of the conversations I might have sitting in a restaurant now. Uh, we were talking about this the other night when Morty gave his report about the book he's written, that, that you know, there's kind of a slight issue of discomfort now about being Jewish, depending yes. on where you are. But I've never been in a situation like those people in Israel whose neighbors would like to kill them. You know, I mean, it's one thing to be called a name or to to have someone say something disparaging about Jews here in Montreal, but it's another thing to live in Israel and to know that the people on the other side would like to see you destroyed. So it's very hard to judge. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I guess the way I was raised, you know, Jews are supposed to do good in the world. And Jews are supposed to, you know, 
take care of the stranger and, and all those things. I, I ran a business. I, I tried to apply the ethics, the Jewish ethics, you know, that you, you don't abuse your employees, you, you don't withhold their wages, et cetera, et cetera. You're supposed to do good things in the world, and this isn't good. Mm-hmm. And it's and and the other half of me says, you know, we Jews, we've had some success. We're intelligent people. We're practical people. We get the job done. Fix it. But <laughs> no one's listening. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, do you think some of the challenges that we encounter as a Jewish community are because here in Canada, North America, we are safe as Jews? You know, you mentioned Howard being in Israel after '67 everyone felt like you know we've we've been we've been through trauma we went through the holocaust we fought this war and now we're we we've, we're on this high because we made it we're not threatened anymore and israel you could argue is still threatened on a daily basis or you know still not in an entirely safe position but here in montreal for the most part we're safe and does this make it harder to be jewish in a way does it make it harder to pass on the idea that being Jewish matters, that being Jewish is important when uh, Judaism is a choice and we're safe. So I guess what I'm asking is, what is the point of being Jewish? Is he talking about our children? Please. (laughs) (laughs) There are uh, are any number of ways one can live one's life. Uh, This is... uh, our heritage, and there are, is within this heritage enough that's positive and life-affirming that is uh, uh, that ought to be sufficiently engaging for most of ourselves and our youth. And there are, you know, it's it's like there's been a focus for I think far too long on the negative aspects of Jewish existence the persecution and suffering, which is undeniable and is there. But there are a whole bunch of valid reasons for wanting to uh, follow this particular ethic. It's how you get through. It's what you do in life. And the, mm. the values that we espouse, uh, you know, the choose life as a starter uh, is, is important because there are other traditions which don't choose life. They choose the opposite. Mm-hmm. As, as a guideline in terms of their tolerance of other cultures. Uh, I, I think that there is room enough, and we have difficult points in our tradition and in, in, in the Torah. There are many difficult stories to try and uh, make congruent with our values in the 21st century. More than a few. That, that's <laughs> what we struggle with is reconstruction, so trying to make sense out of what our tradition has handed us and say, how do we reinterpret, how do we reevaluate, how do we transcend and, and transvalue? I think that was the word that was popular in the 60s and 70s with Reconstructions. Mm-hmm. How do we transvalue our tradition? I think you can. I think that's what we've been struggling with for our lifetime to make sense of how we lead our lives in, in, in congruity with what's been handed down to us and, mm-hmm. and in, in a way that makes sense. And, we're currently challenged by the intermarriage of both of our children, who were given every benefit the Jewish child could have, and opted nonetheless to find partners who we love dearly and have embraced, and will continue to do so. Um, but I think that we can find within our tradition even ways to deal with that in in, this, in a way that makes sense 
and is um, welcoming. And that, I guess, is really why we have both worked so hard to build this place and to be part of the people who make sure that it's there. That is, an institution isn't there only if you're, if you're only looking forward to the times that it's important to you. Uh-huh. You've got to have an ongoing commitment, and ours goes back at this point uh, 40 years. Uh-huh. Yeah, so it's, it's a long time. And um, we've certainly, I think, been able to benefit far more than what we've given. And what we've given, I think, is considerable in terms of time and leadership. But our family always benefited more from being part of this community. And I think our children still do, even though they are not here <laughs> on a weekly basis or even on a, a sometimes holiday basis. And uh, I think that our current involvement and our becoming more involved again is uh, partially precipitated by the arrival of grandchildren. And you want the institution to be there for them too and see that they know that it's there and can come from time to time and build a relationship. So as you describe this community, you actually use the word institution many times. And of course, that word can mean many things. I think for the younger generation, that is a scary no, no. word. Yeah. Institution, in its best uh, definition, is something that provides resources, provides... Yeah, provides a home, provides a place where you can grow up, learn, get and be supported in, in, in your life. But on its in its worst way, an institution is a place that doesn't you that doesn't care about what you care about, that is led from the top down, that is always asking for money and to make sure that that building that you spoke about is taken care of. Mm-hmm. And that it, it it's uh in some ways a top down uh system of of community where it wants something of you instead of asking what you want of, of it. And I think I know speaking for many people my generation, that's what makes building Jewish communities so challenging is too many younger Jews see Judaism as primarily an institution, not a family, not a not even a community as much as the building and the the, the, the institution itself. Mm-hmm. So with that in mind, even though I, I clearly know that you mean much more than the institution when you use that word, looking forward, how are we going to inspire people, younger generation, unaffiliated, unsure, especially in this city, which is a unique city uh, in North mm-hmm. America as with the Jewish community, how do we inspire them to understand the Judaism is all that you see it as, much more than that institution, but that beautiful place that gives you that strength, that toolbox to understand your your role in the world, connects you with family, with community. How do we get to that point? When, when I talk about uh, the institution, I'm thinking of the resources that are available because the place exists. Now, whether the place was this place or some other place or deployed differently, I mean, it, it, to some extent, I would be upset if, if there was no, if, if, if we had, it got to a position where we couldn't support a building, had to do something else. But th- that's not the end of it. it the, it's the sum total of the people who make up the community, which is really important. Mm-hmm. The people who would care to be involved, lend their time, their expertise, their talent, their competencies to teach, to learn together, to reach out to people, to support each other 
that doesn't take a building that you know may cost several million dollars a year to run. It uh -huh. can take much less in terms of harnessing people to reach out and be available, having a wandering rabbi, somewhat like you are. You know, I mean, it, it's nice to have a home, uh, but in the future it may be a different home. It may be a different configuration that mm. uh, that is is responding to well as what you're saying is the changing the changing attitudes and 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 i don't know maybe exigencies or requirements that other groups younger people have they're not looking for the same sort of support we need to respond to them it it may it may be in a different kind of structure that would be okay but to me when i say institution it's like having not not necessarily this place but this uh this particular group of people in common interest and common concern that would support a community that needs spiritual guidance. Mm -hmm. So for you, institution is more of the support system, yeah. the resources, not necessarily the, the building, the, the, the money, the, the physical as much as the, the community the, itself. And, and to a certain extent, this is, this is a, a 20th century model, yes. which, which is not responding all that well to people's needs. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I'm guessing in the, in the 70s and 80s, we were more in tune with Chavurot, developing here and there, popping up wherever they could, finding a space to congregate together, to learn together, to daven together, to develop together. But it didn't have to be a, a large... Uh, a large commitment to a long-term lease or... Mm. So what mortgage. happened? Because that, that was a lot, the 60s and 70s, you know, the, the new Jewish catalog, uh, yep. Havirot, that yep. was so much of what Jewish community was. Then have we gone back well, back before that to a place that is still, that is not fulfilling the needs of the, Jew, the, the Jewish The boomers community. grew up and had families and mortgages and began to see the world. Move to the suburbs. And, exactly. <laughs> well, I think though what happened here was that, you know, we 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 came to this synagogue in 1976, I think. Uh, it had existed... It had a building. It was in year uh, year nine, I think, of its building, or year fifteen, whatever. The building was the intention when they built the original synagogue, which you never saw. Uh, they built it really inexpensively with no foundation, yes. no basement. The purpose was that because the, the thought was this is going to catch on. If it catches on, mm -hmm. there'll be many other reconstructionist chavarod homes, whatever you want to call it, all over the place in Montreal, and the building won't matter anymore. And if it doesn't catch wow. on, at least we haven't invested a fortune. The, you know, it was the members who, who put the money together. So they built it with the intention of building something for short term because it was going to be seeded in the community. What an so incredible instead, idea. Yes, I haven't heard but that instead, before. Once they mm. hired, a, forgive me, a real rabbi, a young rabbi from the college, and Lady Becker was able to step back and let the young rabbi bring the newer ideas and so on, it was tremendously successful. Mm. So the reason we built the building was because by the mid-90s, it was literally falling to pieces and was could not be repaired because it had no foundation. When you had a crack in the wall that you could stand inside, you can't fix that. You can put all the plaster you want. It just cracks some more. If you had a foundation, you could fix it. But they didn't have one. So you're telling me the, the reconstruction synagogue could not be reconstructed. It could not That's be right. reconstructed. <laughs> and it was dangerous. Yes. And it was so successful. The membership was, you can't imagine what was going on at the High Holidays. There was no other option. 
we either had to move or build. We couldn't stay. Hmm. And this was not... It well, we, was had, not we had a, parallel services in, like, at the Jewish, Jewish People's, People's School. At, for Rosh Hashanah, we couldn't possibly... Just 15 minutes away. Building. Yes, yes. The children's program, we were lucky that we had members in the community who would give their homes for 80 or 90 children on Rosh Hashanah afternoon. You know, we'd trot mm. them over to somebody who lived on whatever street around the corner. When, you know, Rabbi Ron wanted so badly to see a building that would fit. Uh, you know, we used to kibitz that it was this, you know, dream of glory and who needs it. And But in the end, there was no other option. And uh, yes. it fulfilled his dream, but it fulfilled our needs. The, the, the first yantif at, the, at this building, when you counted all the people upstairs, downstairs, it was over 1,100 people. I and, kid you not. And they fit. And they fit. They fit, yes, and there yeah. was room to, and enough bathrooms. <laughs> and a real kitchen. But it's interesting. You, you said that that first building was, you know, it was, it was, not, it was intended not to fulfill all the needs of the community way. And, you know, the word I've heard, it was the one-room synagogue, in a sense, with... Yeah. Uh, that was Hamish. It had it, yes. you had a feeling yes. when you when you had to move the chairs back so that you could gather for Kiddush after services. When you had to work together to really make that building that institution function, that that was a powerful experience. That some people say when you build a new building mm -hmm. that's more permanent, you lose that. May I Please? add my two cents? Since we were so active every holiday, every Shabbat, etc. One bathroom, one. You know now that Shabbat I can see is an issue. Like? When you had the elderly ladies, as soon as they got here, got in line for the bathroom. That wasn't great. Um, when you had to move the chairs for the kiddush, not every family thought that was terrific. A lot of families were ashamed and embarrassed for their friends that the chairs had to be schlepped. Uh, you know, I... I so Honestly, there's the theoretical understanding of this and yeah, the reality. Right, it's so course. easy to say, oh, it was wonderful then. Yeah. But the truth is, you know. No, no we had really outgrown it. There's no question. It was a room, a multifunctional room, which had been built to probably accommodate. I mean, they, they're hoping that they, well, no, where they gather 50 to 75 families all together. Sachakol, mm -hmm. 200 people. But the idea that yeah. we were up at eleven hundred tickets we in had circulation. Over 500 member units. That's you know that's that's a lot. Now okay. you're right. There there are other answers. Yeah. You could have said, okay, for Yontif, go rent a, a hotel. I mean, everybody mm. drives. It's not a yeah, that wasn't the, the issue. Didn't that's true. The rabbi didn't want to walk um, to Queen Elizabeth. I don't blame him. Yeah, and he wanted to have his congregation together. Yeah, for sure. You understand that, of course. But but you know, <laughs> I think the problem, and I don't want this to be a whole other podcast. I think. Getting the building built meant that the whole community had to work together. It was an yeah. extremely mm. challenging. Well, it was it was an extreme challenge that worked. We had, I think, in terms of financial participation, high up in the nineties. Yeah. You know, people gave anything from eighteen dollars to. Seven you mean ninety percent? Yeah. In the high ninety percent of people who donated something, something. That's, to the building fund. That's incredible. Yeah. And um, as I said, the lowest gift that I recall, $18, the highest gift was in the seven or I think seven figures. So you had tremendous unity. Once it was built, there was the tremendous excitement of, wow, it's really here. And for most people, you know, it, it, came, it was built very quickly. So for most people, it sort of was like, 
all of a sudden, look at this gorgeous building that has mm. bathrooms and so on. The problem, it was interesting I think, during was the, the summer that it was built at its various uh, stages of development for a, quite a long period. You just saw the guts of it. There were these incredibly elegant gray beams, the steel beams that, that, yeah. that you could identify what the rooms were. Mm-hmm. And we used to come every night yeah, to see the progress. And we weren't the only ones. People would come every night to watch this thing being built. I mean, there was such a uh, feeling of investment and yeah. ownership and pride in having undertaken a project and succeeded. But what was missing was the plan for integration, which might have included things like having a potluck every week, for example, making mm-hmm. people apply the old the old schmaltzy nostalgic stuff to this gorgeous new place yes. uh, and that never happened and i think that I, i'm not going to go into you know more hypotheses but i think that um what we never got around to doing was planning for how to make it work for us mm. and one last word before it was uh designed we did a very thorough um, needs assessment mm-hmm. survey among the membership, where every member had the opportunity to, to you know, not only answer questions, but write anything, ask for anything, express any desire in our new home. What do we need? And we had tremendous response there. There was one town hall meeting where somebody whose uh, spouse was in a wheelchair um, objected to the accommodation which was made. It was going to be one of these little lift things that would you know, sort of take you up. And that precipitated the complete redesign of the structure with the proper elevator. Yeah. There wasn't going to be an elevator. Wow. <laughs> so, so, you know, the, the, there was, it was a very democratic process. And um, no democratic process is perfect, but there was a tremendous amount of opportunity for people to really say what they wanted. And I think it, 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 was really, mm. it really worked very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as I said, what we didn't understand was we needed the plan B, which was how to make it feel that warm yes. feeling. So when you hear these comments, you know, they're, they're, it's a complex issue. It is. And it's yes, a very complex issue. And I think some of those questions of how to make this work for us are yeah. now coming up many years later. Kiddush. Kiddush, many other things. That's not a new Of course. Problem. No, you I'm sure that. it's not. It went no. back to decades. Really early years. Decades. Early years. Now, I, again, I want to go back to what you said, though, which was beautiful, a beautiful rethinking of the purpose of Jewish community and Jewish institutions and even the building itself was that the building was uh, the, the, the starting point, but that you would have the dream was to have programs in, in people's homes and to do things in the community, which uh, is, I think, the way that we're thinking about what it means to create a Jewish community, that people... The building itself, we have a wonderful building. Many synagogues have a wonderful building. But mm-hmm. to step foot in a building is not necessarily that first step that people want to take. But they'll go to a coffee shop. They'll go to someone's home. They'll go to a, a brew pub. So it almost it also seems like that has also been lost. That this building, any Jewish institutional building, becomes the place where everything is meant to happen. Mm-hmm. Yet Judaism does not happen only no. in a synagogue. No. You know, the Israelites were wandering f- through the desert in, in, in the wilderness. Uh, and so many of the, of the most powerful spiritual moments that many people have are not necessarily sitting in sanctuary. Yeah. 
So I guess as we also think forward, not only in this community, but as a Jewish community as a whole, what what can we do to hold on to the power of this physical space, but also remember that Judaism doesn't necessarily take place in a synagogue, but takes place in our real lives in a sense? I'll answer you indirectly, I guess. Mm-hmm. The Kumsitz program was great for that. I can also remember we'd have speakers come in from the movement or other synagogues. I remember hosting a few of those evenings in our home, even though we had a synagogue. But it's nice to go to someone's house. You mm-hmm. know, it's an anecdote. Our children who were raised here in, in a very serious kind of way and then moved on, uh, when our daughter had her twins, uh, and they had to have their brief. There was no question it had to be here. I was surprised. I said, you never come. You don't want to belong. This means nothing to you. It's my shul. <laughs> so, you know. Yes. Uh, and the, the other child's baby had had his brief in our home, and it was fine. She said, no, 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 no. It must be in our synagogue. And I think part of it was for the in-laws to see, for the mm. in-laws family to see that there is such a thing, you know, Hindu again. Uh, it surprised me that there is still that need. Our daughter has uh, tried to become involved in the Myland Chavara. Uh, at first she thought it was great. And then she realized it's it's infighting, it's power plays, it's money. It's, <laughs> yes. She said, who needs this? You know. Yes. So I don't really... I, what you're asking, these are, these are things that... Uh, there's, no, there's no fixed answer, I think. Our lives have changed so much. You know, we've known each other all these years. When, when we went to Israel on our honeymoon, Israel and, and a few other countries, we packed suitcases full of all kinds of clothes. I remember <laughs> we went to South Africa and I was, you know, should I bring my white kid gloves or not? You know, we had formal clothes. We go on a holiday now. We go to a simcha now with a carry-on luggage that has comfy clothes. Um, you know, Rabbi Shire has done these meetings where he hangs out at Starbucks once in a while and anybody who wants to come and talk to him is welcome to come and talk to him you know that's a huge change particularly for a rabbi from the Shara Shemayim but maybe that's the way things have to be mm-hmm. it's kind of a rediscovering and rebuilding and adapting to modern life where, where I, you know if we can do it online we'll do it online so going you know, going out to where the people are instead of asking but, them to come yeah. to us but you know I think in, I haven't read it today but as I noticed the, the Canadian Jewish News arrived on our doorstep this morning and the, the, the front page is the lead article how did Chabad some little sect become the largest Jewish organization in the world I think that their marketing is amazing. Yeah. They're yeah. out there. They just they just do it. They you know, it, you know it. You'd think, I don't know, in old Montreal, in Greenfield Park, in 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 Kirkland, Kirkland how many Jews could there be? But each one has its own little, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Chabad rabbi, uh, or, and 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 somehow they put them and, and people gravitate towards them. What you know, it's like. I don't know, it's Bemuna. They, they're there with great faith. If you build it, they will come. It's like that you know, baseball movie with, uh, what's his name? It's Kevin Costner, mm-hmm. I think. You know, we build a baseball field, the players will come. You establish, not even establish, open my house, open my living room, people walk in. If you invite them, they'll come in. And it's a question of, if this can't be the living room, 
uh, because it's too, I don't know, austere, overwhelming, uh, threatening to people, then it's our, I think, our obligation, not our obligation, but in our, it would be good. I don't know. I don't want to put it as, as, a, as onerous as an obligation. It should be something that should be embraced, that it's, it's beneficial for all to say, we can meet you halfway. Mm. Which is, I understand, you're doing it with your chant. Rabbi Shar is doing it by going to, I mean, the idea that the, sh the Rabbi the Shar Shemayim would be at a street corner basically pulling people in, is, 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 you never would have believed it, you know, 50 years ago or even 25 well, years ago. Well, it's not a kosher establishment, I mean. Like, no, but whatever. still, it, it, it's the idea of the accessibility yeah. mm -hmm. to the rabbinate, which is, is different. Uh, and uh, it's hard to place... I don't want to go into him mm -hmm. because it, it's it's a different it's different, a different space, but it, it certainly certainly goes well with our movement. Yeah. It, it does. <laughs> when I think also you use the word, you know, Chabad rabbis have a deep faith in the sense that what they're doing they know is right and that other people, or they know is something that other people can benefit work, from. Can benefit from. Yeah. I think what I hope we're working towards is an understanding that as liberal Jews, as Reconstructionist Jews in a city of mostly orthodox synagogues that we have something that is so Special. useful so that's filled with so much mm -hmm. potential that so many people i would argue even those people at orthodox synagogues mm -hmm. who might not really be at places that fit their values that we are offering something so incredibly useful and a value for them we are not standing on the street corners as much right. as we should people don't know that we exist I'm very optimistic about the future of our synagogue, of our community, because I, I'm, well, I'm a very optimistic person, but I also see that these changes are hugely important. You know, something that is lost on people of my generation and the younger generation is this sense of obligation to each other and to community, Jewish community and otherwise. Yeah, the t overused term, the me generation, yeah. there's some truth to that, but I think what we're trying to get people to understand, I would hope, is that why do you join a Jewish community, institution or otherwise, is because there is something powerful about being obligated to yeah. care about each other. And it's something that works both ways. If you say, I'm part of a community and I'm here to support and guide and take care of the, the people in my community, when you're in a place of need, yeah. they will also care for you. You can do that a little bit on Facebook. You can do that a little bit sitting in the comfort of your own home with your cell phone and Netflix. But to be in a community, the physical space, the spiritual space, and everything else that a community really means, that's something that I think it's worked for thousands of years. Sure, right. And just because it's harder to get people in our synagogue doesn't mean it's still not working. It, it, well, y you're right. I mean... It, the essence of the of our tradition is social interface. Yeah, I mean, you have to have a minion to to, to say Kaddish. You need to be part of the community immediately after a death. You have to be brought back in. People have to interact with you. The essence of it is to keep us involved and engaged in living. Uh, via social media, we, we're estranged from each other. We're even estranged from ourselves, mm. because if this is a way to relate, it's it's really, it, it's it's a great way to market stuff. And I'm sure those same Chabad guys use it to their advantage. But they're really big in terms of personal, in-your-face outreach. Mm -hmm. and certainly, at every 
difficult moment in your life, they're there. Yeah. They're, they're in spades. They'll provide you with whatever you need, support, guidance, a minion, uh, things that really count, yes. that really make our, our, our lives better. Uh, they enhance mm-hmm. they enhance experiences yeah. and that's I, I guess ultimately that's what this place should be too not this place but ourselves as a group should be about enhancing each other's lives as we move through it and that they, that's a, that's a, not an easy thing to do but it's the kind of thing that you maybe sometimes disappointed because maybe your group didn't come through as great as you thought they should but they probably tried and maybe they didn't make the best overture. Maybe they didn't make you as comfortable as you thought you should be. Take it up with the leaders of the community, whomever they may be, mm-hmm. but continue to be engaged. Um, and what is it? You shouldn't separate yourselves from the community because that community is where it's, it's ultimately happening. It's hard to be alone in this world. It's yeah. hard not to have an ally, a companion, mm-hmm. a wife, a husband. <laughs> All these things are important, and that's what I, I think we try to pass these ideas and values on to our children, and I think they have mostly absorbed them. They just don't necessarily uh, live them out in ways which are uh, maybe we had anticipated. But that's okay, because we probably did things that our parents couldn't understand either, mm-hmm. and that's probably the... Um, the legacy to each succeeding generation. Sure. And all the better as Reconstruction is to say, look at it in trans value. <laughs> Try to understand it in, uh-huh. in, its, in its context. You can't make sense of the Torah written for an agrarian society in the 21st century. It's just not, not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And you have to look at it differently and say, okay, this doesn't work. It made sense for somebody else. It was a good story for them. It doesn't work for us. We'll we'll take a different attack on it, or you know, a different different understanding. Mm-hmm. So, um, I I like Elaine. I remain very hopeful because I think mm-hmm. we're both trying to look forward for the benefit of our community, for our family, and its role in that community. Because uh, that's what that's what the synagogue's about is sure. building a community. Mm-hmm. It's not about building a synagogue. The synagogue was supposed to be a support, a a a tool by which we'd enhance the communal, uh, the communal experience. If it didn't continue to, see, to fulfill that, that purpose, you could move beyond it. There, there, are many, there, you know, there are many other things to do. You could, it's a desirable property. It has a commercial value. Somebody else might use it as a religious institution, and we could find ourselves in a different situation, in a smaller whatever, and finding ourselves renting, as you said, not on street corners, but in other places where people want to congregate and, and meet. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think that's the obvious choice, but it, it's not not it's not heresy. Other people share spaces, and mm-hmm. um, even different faiths share spaces. I think that's quite common in the yeah. United States, where it is. You know, yeah. churches on Sunday, Shabbat is on yeah. Saturday. And for Muslim community, Friday. So works perfectly. You can have three people splitting the rent. And the atheists can choose any day they any like. they like because it doesn't matter to them. <laughs> I, I'd like to add a point, just sort of that, that kind of relates to this whole question. You know, in all these our decades of, of, of um, experience at Dorshe, I met uh, with so many Devar Torahs, followed by discussions and so on. 
you know, I started to hear this this uh, this concern with, you know, people wanting to explore their Jewish selves, and and I I always kind of flinch because for me, my Jewish self is in my DNA. It's in my gender self. It's in, it's like, I because of the way I was raised, mm-hmm. I I can't separate my Jewish self from the self who goes to work and you know in in every work experience I've had and uh, some of them in a very very in the opposite of Jewish uh, community etc I've always used my my Jewish toolbox my Jewish values my Jewish ethics to function uh, not once in a while but all the time so I, I guess that's another Thing that's happened when I this kind of comment connecting to my Jewish self, I've never heard it from someone my age. I've heard it from people who are much younger than me, and I, I, I realize there must be something missing. There may be, maybe, you know, I, I, I don't. Um, I'm not laughing at them saying that, it, though it seems so peculiar to me. Mm-hmm. But I think that, um, you know, things have changed in my lifetime. Things are different. I. Uh, our children had an, a very, we thought, a very rich Jewish experience on a daily basis. Um, they also had the benefit of having known their grandparents for many years, mm. uh, and and that added another layer. I I can't say that you know it it uh, that they've rejected it. They certainly don't live it the way we did and do. But but it's it must be there in some way or other. Uh, I I wonder what it's like for them, with the in their non-Jewish marriages, uh, to deal with the other, you mm. know, not to have that that um, common language, that common understanding, uh, you know, they seem very happy. So I suppose it either works fine, or they've adjusted to it. Um, we are grateful that we have access to our grandchildren, not just. You know, all the time for the pleasure of it, but there's a, a very, they're very, you know, happy if we bring them to shul. They're very happy about the holidays. They've actually taught their children little bits and pieces of things here and there. And uh, I try to talk to the older one about what it means to be Jewish, and you know, what's different about me being Jewish and your mummy who's not, and 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 what's the same. Um, it's a complicated question. Hmm. You know, uh, we have to, we, we didn't have it in us to ever say to our children, you must raise your children as Jews. I don't care whom you marry, but those are Jewish. We couldn't say it. We couldn't say it. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're delighted that it seems to be working out. But it's not that we couldn't say it because we're wimpy. I can't tell my child who's an adult, this is what you have to do. I can't do it. You know, if I saw my kid stealing from a depanur, I could say, okay, you can't do that. But I, can't, I don't have it in me to tell my child, you're wrong, you're doing a wrong thing, when I see that that child is very comfortable in his own decision. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have fun with yours when they grow up. <laughs> you know? I'm sure I will. I'm sure you are already. Yes. But it's, uh, it, it, it's a very enriching experience. Yeah. Any other, any other thoughts? Well, thank you, Howard and Elaine, for sharing your story. And you really have a very hopeful vision of the Jewish future, I think. 
you've learned a lot in, from your individual backgrounds uh, and also clearly have learned from each other. Your families have learned from each other to connect with Judaism in a way that's practical and meaningful and truly forward thinking, which I think is something very refreshing. And I know that not everyone can think that way. So thank you both for sharing your story. Thank you for inviting us. It was a pleasure to be here. hope that you enjoyed this episode of A Jewish Life. I'm excited to once again begin recording the stories of people in our community, to learn and be inspired and to grow from our diversity and our unique ways of seeing the world. There are so many stories out there, so many different ways of connecting with Jewish life and tradition, and these stories come from you. As usual, if you're interested in sharing your story on our podcast, or if you have comments on the show, you can always contact me at boris at ajewishlife.org, or find me on our website, ajewishlife.org, or Facebook at A Jewish Life. Your story, your journey, is part of our story, and I look forward to getting to know you on A Jewish Life. A Jewish Life.